Well, actually, it's brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know MMA ticket prices tend to drop right before the event starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. And here's the best part. It's quick, too. The app itself is super simple to navigate, and if you do find your tickets, whether they're for games or fights or concerts or even comedy shows, all it takes is two taps and you are good to go. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download Game Time and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of, well, actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. This is an interesting week for the sport. This Saturday, UFC 244 takes place at Madison Square Garden, and a title will be on the line. It's not just any title, though. Rather than a champion, the headliner between Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal will determine the baddest motherfucker in the UFC. Or in the sport. Or in the world, really. They haven't clarified it. But anyway, unless you are just now waking up from a cryogenic slumber, like Sylvester Stallone in the timeless classic Demolition Man, you knew that already. Diaz and Masvidal are basically everywhere. And if you want to read or hear about them, I am happy to inform you that the entire internet has got you covered. But I don't. Well, sort of. I will venture into Nate Diaz territory here, more specifically his whole recent USADA situation, but it is just one of the many topics that we are covering this week. And yes, you heard that right, I did say we, because as it turns out, it's not just me this time. I was joined by Bellator featherweight Leslie Smith, and we covered a lot of ground. From her unique experience with Project Spearhead in the battle for collective bargaining for fighters to our shared experiences as women who are in MMA and who are online and who also happen to have opinions about these and other things. Leslie opened up about the rough patch after the end of her UFC tenure and how her experience with the show Wim to Warrior helped her get over that. She talked about Bellator and where the idea of a title sits in her mind. She also gave a lot of cool insight on how attitudes have changed since she first started training more than a decade ago. And we talked about how our own attitudes have changed about our surroundings over the years. I also found out that I'm not the only one who's bad with less names. Anyway, I'm a little biased because I had a lot of fun talking to Leslie. And I can only hope that you guys will have half as much fun listening to us. And if you don't, well, I'm sure both Leslie and I will hear about it. It's cool. We're used to it. First of all, I want to thank Leslie for being on the show. She's got a fight coming up uh, at Bellator 233 on November 8th against Arlene Blanco. I hope I'm saying that right. And she still made time for us. We're recording on a Sunday. So, yeah, I kind of ruined her weekend. But uh, welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Hmm, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. So there's a ton that I want to touch on with you, but I guess I'll go, uh, let's start by going a little bit further back uh, and then we'll make our way to the current events that I know you have some uh, some interesting insight and opinions on. So first off, I guess you certainly become one of the most visible figures in the uh, battle for fighter rights, especially because you made yourself visible. You've been very outspoken and especially uh, with Project Spearhead. So for those of us 
for those in a larger audience uh, who might not be that familiar with Project Spearhead, would you mind just giving it a quick explanation of just the gist of it, what the idea of it is, and how it, it started? Yeah, my pleasure. Project Spearhead was, is, um, it's more like was, because it's moved into a different phase right now. It was a mm -hmm. union organizing drive to organize the UFC fighters into a union. Because mm -hmm. the UFC fighters were misclassified, are currently misclassified as independent contractors, they're not protected by the laws that make it um, illegal for them to be prevented from unionizing. So what Project Spearhead was doing is they were, we were collecting authorization cards so that we could submit mm -hmm. those to the National Labor Relations Board and through that get an election for a union. Got it. You did talk about was and is because it moved on to a different phase. So where does the project stand out now? Well, the cards were only active for one year. And so the mm -hmm. cards that everybody signed, it, it, it was an okay number of people. We were on track for a little bit um, up until I got cut from the roster. And then that kind of froze the process a little bit. Um, we, we were collecting cards pretty well, but the cards were only good for a year. So now what, what's probably the main focus is to just educate everybody on what a union could do for them and to continue planting the seed in the hopes and in the anticipation of another person picking it up where I left off, somebody else who is a UFC fighter who can use that platform in order to um, get the other fighters on board. Got it. Um, so since you mentioned being cut from the roster, uh, we would you mind just going over? We You were on a bit of a streak there, and you were about to fight, and then the fight didn't happen. Uh, so could would you mind just uh, letting us, you know, telling us a little bit how that, how your relationship with the UFC ended? Yeah. Well, I had, um, I'd started Project Spearhead in February of 2017. Gosh, that seems like forever ago. <laughs> but I started, yeah, I started it in February because I had the last fight on my contract that I signed mm -hmm. the bout agreement for it, and it was supposed to be in April. And so mm -hmm. I was training hard, and I came in, I made weight, and I was ready to fight, to fight out my contract. But my opponent missed weight. And this was in New Jersey. And in New Jersey, they had to sign bout agreements that say that if you show up on weight and you're ready to fight, but the contract isn't fulfilled either because the promotion or the um, opponent doesn't make weight, because that's part of the contract, then you're still owed the full amount of money. And so when my opponent didn't make weight, it opened the door to more political um, activity than it, it, it opened the door for me to try to talk to the UFC about extending my contract so that I could stay in the UFC for longer because I had a hunch that they probably were not going to be happy to extend my contract because I didn't think they were too enthusiastic about the union stuff. Mm -hmm. But instead of negotiating with me at all, 
they instead said that they were just going to pay me my show money and my win money and consider that the last bout on my contract and then take me off the roster. And I mean, I, I remember the whole thing going down uh, at the time and you were very outspoken and available throughout the entire thing to talk about what was happening. But, uh, you know, on a personal level, like obviously you found a new home with Bellator, but you were in this weird professional situation. Like you're dealing with the uncertainty that we all deal with at certain points in our lives, but you were doing it in a very public setting. And there's the fact that, you know, as fighters, you guys are basically being paid for fight, uh, being paid per fight. You're in this, situation that feels and looks at least a little bit arbitrary and you're doing it in front of everyone so how was it just like a whole situation with the UFC just emotionally for you how did you feel at the time oh man it was rough I'd like to sound cool and act like it wasn't <laughs> a big deal but it was um it 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 took me a while to admit that I got pretty depressed after it especially because of, like you said, it was so public and I was being on social media because I felt like that's what I needed to do in order to bring awareness to the situation and to, to try to galvanize the other fighters into signing authorization cards. But, um, but being online means, and I know that you're very familiar with this, that being a woman online just opens you up to so many vitriolic, hateful, jerky, uneducated comments. And even knowing how dumb those people are and that nothing that they say matters, it's really hard to remember that. Yeah, I'm... <laughs> can absolutely relate and it's interesting because at the time i feel like the mma community um sort of understood absolutely where you were coming from but we uh sometimes i feel like me and other journalists like we're stuck in this bubble where we think that the people are seeing things a certain way and then what you guys are experiencing are different so how were you how was your life online at the time like were you getting support was it mostly like how was the balance and how was it to just deal with the reactions well you're right that the fighters were being really nice the other fighters mm -hmm. that i talked to when i would see them in person not so much in writing i'd get a couple messages but more in person when nobody else was watching They would say, good job, and um, they would have done the same thing, a lot of them told me, and that it's good that I stood up for it, and that it was lousy that the UFC did me dirty like that, and so that was nice. It was nice. I appreciated that. Like, really, other than the opponent who missed weight, everybody else was super cool that's fighters, but... But the general public was like, you were scared to fight. And I shouldn't have let that get to me. I'm a lot better at letting things not get to me. But for some reason, I felt the need to defend myself. And you know how when you defend yourself on Twitter, all it does is open you up to a million more attacks that don't even make sense. And then all of a sudden, you're just like fighting everybody. That's how I felt. <laughs> Absolutely. I can get, I can absolutely relate to that as well. But um, I'm sure when you first started this thing, like uh, when you first started, especially Project Spearhead, you weren't really expecting things to be easy. But uh, was there any part of that, 
of the whole process that surprised you? And I mean that both in a positive or negative way, because like you said, there were many layers to it, right? There's the process of getting the larger audience to pay attention. There's the process of setting things legally in motion. And there was the process you're talking about authorization cards and just getting the fighters on board. So out of everything, was there anything that you weren't really expecting out of this process that happened? Well, yes, I knew that that fight was probably going to be my last fight in the UFC. But mm -hmm. then when the fight didn't happen, I it, it it was like looking forward to going to the ice cream store all day long in like yeah. like 102 degree heat and and like carrying something heavier, wearing a wool sweater and then just looking forward to that ice cream and then not even getting the ice cream. And so I was pretty surprised at how depressed I, and I, 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 my apologies to anybody if it feels like I'm using that word lightly. Um, I'm not trying to, but it was like, it shook my identity to the core and I totally hadn't expected that. I talked to Brendan Schaub about it on his, um, on his show. And he said mm -hmm. that that's something that a lot of athletes go through when they leave the NFL, when they leave a major team or that a phase of their career um, moves on, that it, yeah. it does have that shock in the identity. And so um, that was a really big surprise. And I have so much respect for all the labor leaders in the past and currently who have been able to go through that and, and mm -hmm. not show any outside pain or anything like that. Because for a little bit, I even had to stop doing interviews and things because I uh, just, I wasn't communicating very well and I didn't have enthusiasm for anything for a little while. Oh, wow. Um, at that point, like, were you considering maybe not fighting anymore? Uh, well, I'm... It, see, that's to... tough. Yeah, that's tough yeah. because I feel like I'm I'm getting better right now than mm -hmm. I ever have been. I feel like mm -hmm. like my athletic ability is just barely starting to peak, and mm -hmm. so it it felt like such a loss to be leaving that. And also, yeah. there's the fact that mm, I'm going to school right now. I'm uh, yeah. I'm in a program for my bachelor's degree but other than that i uh i don't <laughs> i've like waited tables i don't have a whole lot of other methods of making money and so yeah. i was like well what should, what do i even do with my life at this point um yeah so i didn't want to give up fighting and in a way mm -hmm. i was kind of jaded on it and i was disappointed in the industry and mm -hmm. and had a hard time getting enthusiasm for it and for training. But at the same time, it's been my life for the past 10 years. And I did not want that to end. Got it. And 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 like I said, you're you're with Bellator now and you got your a win on your debut and you have a big fight coming up. But uh, how, what got you out of that? sort of funk like you said you don't want to use the word lightly but just being depressed and not motivated so what kind of like uh got you out of that situation my teammate had a fight carrie melendez she mm -hmm. she had a fight um last september and that was super exciting and so that that made me really excited about just being around the fight game and and 
going through the emotional highs and lows. And then another thing that, that made a really big difference was the, um, was I got to be a coach for, have you heard of the program Wimps to Warriors? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think one of the when I worked for MMA Junkie, one of the videographers was working with maybe Jessica Rose Clark. I think she was involved. Yeah, she's been one of the coaches before. Oh yeah, so yeah, we don't have that. I don't. It's not a thing in Brazil, but I've heard of it. So go ahead. Cool. Well, um, when Carrie had her fight, which she won, and it was super impressive and wonderful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a teammate and a training partner and, and there's like this super high level of emotional involvement when it's your teammate mm -hmm. who's fighting. But then when, uh, when I got to be a coach for Wimps to Warriors, it's this program where regular people who haven't trained before, they come in and for, um, I think it's five months. They trained every single day for two hours, an hour and a half to two hours, every day for five months. And then at the end of it, they fought. And so that really brought me away from all of the politics and any lofty ideals or, or thoughts or anything that I had about MMA and brought me back to the nitty gritty of just these are the techniques and this is how it feels when you do something right and getting to share the experience of people learning about the power that they have was so much fun. That's awesome. And how did uh, Bellator come into the picture? Oh, yeah. And then shortly after that, I got to sign with Bellator. And that made me really happy. And then I got to throw myself into a training camp. And mm, I guess that if I'm completely being honest, that I was probably an emotional wreck all the way up until winning the fight. <laughs> And then after winning the fight, I was like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, it's cool. So, the, <laughs> right, so that's good. why I do this. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, since you, the, the, the things that you're talking about, I think that uh, they're very hard for us to relate to as non-fighters. Because like you said, you had poured your energy and your life into this. And then you kind of like feel like it's been... The rug, the, the rug has been sweeped from under your feet. Um, and I think what you talk about often is something that makes us think about the day-to-day -day lives and the dynamics of being a fighter. And we're realizing more and more like how shit is fucked up for you guys. <laughs> so far in my language. Uh, and I think when we have all, now we have all these details coming out, uh, talking specifically about the UFC uh, with the antitrust lawsuit and we're having more of a glimpse into negotiation tactics and fighter pay and you know i think before we really hid behind the wall of oh yeah we don't really know what's going on because everything's so secretive and now we we're not really having that excuse uh you know it's just really it's more out in the open do you kind of feel my opinion my my impression of it is that we're sort of collectively becoming more aware of how it is to be a fighter and how difficult it is to be a fighter and how things are just not really how how the balance is not really there for you guys so am i being naive here or is this something that you're also noticing like do you feel like people are more aware of fighter issues at this point yeah i think that you are a hundred percent right that people are getting a much clearer image of what it's like to be a fighter for a couple different reasons definitely the work that the 
prosecutors are doing in the antitrust case is bringing a lot of information to light as far as as far as like the politics of it and the bargaining methods that the UFC uses and the coercion methods that they use. But I also think that another thing, two other things that are happening, one is that there's more and more people who are training and being friends with fighters and Mm -hmm. just being on the inside circle. So I think that they just have a better idea because they're experiencing it themselves. Like the Wimps to Warriors, for example. I mean, training for two hours a day and then fighting at the end of it, that's a pretty accurate uh, representation of what a fighter's life is. And then, and then the other thing is that I think the fighters themselves are being a whole lot more honest. I don't think that they were very honest about it for a long time. I don't think that fighters wanted to admit that they were really getting the short end of the stick. It was a lot of years before fighters would publicly admit that, hey, they're not getting what they deserve as far as the money or the respect or the dignity or the control over their careers. And so as they get closer to being more honest the fighters themselves about the situations that they're going through i think that people are realizing that they're people and taking more of an interest in them instead of mm, looking at them as other interesting since you mentioned uh fighters being super honest um one thing that just happened (laughs) recently uh was you sat a kind of got back in the forefront of the conversations with the whole Nate Diaz debacle. For a while there, it seemed like his uh, UFC 244 fight with Jorge Masvidal wasn't going to happen. Now, apparently it will, but I mean, we never know. It's a Nate Diaz fight week. Anything can happen. But you you touch on that on your Twitter, and you refer to USADA uh, as on, and this is a quote, unregulated agency with the power to ruin an athlete's career that operates with no oversight. So I think we kind of know where you stand with that. But um, I think we're all happy that we're getting the fight in general. And the public sentiment was really, I think this is just like one of those things we can all agree on. And the public sentiment, I think, was from the get-go that Nate Diaz doesn't really seem like a cheater. He really, uh, he was upfront about the situation uh, from the start. But then again, there was this really quick resolution to this case, something that other fighters didn't get to have in their case. And I think depending on where you stand with USADA, you can have different outlooks and on why that is, right? You can look at it as, you know, this is an evolution of the process and a positive reflection of the changes in the way that they're dealing with contamination. But I guess some people do wonder whether this was done simply because this was such a high-stakes situation for the UFC. So uh, there are many conversations to be had about the Nate Diaz situation, and this is really my long-winded way of asking you, like, what is your takeaway from this whole thing? Uh, gosh, well, I think no, I think on in the first place that we all have to thank Nate Diaz for what he has done as far as changing the way that USADA is dealt with, because mm-hmm. he is the only person to just stand up right in front of them and be like, you want to punch me in the face? I will punch you 10 times harder, because I feel like that's what he did by being like, I'll pull out of this fight like clear my name right now, as opposed to a lot of other fighters who, um, and, and this isn't shaming them at all. This is just, they're in a different position where if, Mm -hmm. if you need the money and they're like, yeah, we'll figure it out afterward, just go ahead. I think it was like Neil Magny. It was 18 months 
that he was out of being able to fight while trying to clear his name. And um, I think that for Josh Barnett, it was like a four-year process um, for him. And I don't think that the UFC ever did some any, any public, hey, he's cool, guys. He wasn't trying to do this to anybody. Um, and so I think that it's a really big deal that Nate has made those changes. I think it's wonderful. I've read some things about what could have happened where... Uh, maybe the test was taken from a long time ago, and since um, Nate disclosed the things that he was taking, they got the information, and then they tested the whatever it was that he disclosed, and then they figured out, oh, okay, that's what the problem is. And so a lot of people have been saying, well, if this stuff happened back in August, and then September, and then October, it's not, it's not that weird for it to be coming out now. But that doesn't really explain it. It is still really weird. It seems like they were like, hey, uh, let this just hang over your head and we'll figure it out afterward. I mean, and, and for the record, I don't have any insider information. This I'm, I'm just on Twitter, just like everybody else, like trying to piece <laughs> things together. But like, that's totally what it seemed like. And it, it was only because Nate was like, you want to punch me in the face? I will punch you 10 more times and harder. That they were like, okay, sorry. Um, yeah, let's expedite this process and figure it out. And yeah, we'll clear your name. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I've, I've also not been following. I don't haven't really talked to anyone. But at The Athletic, there are two stories up there from Chad Dundas and Josh Groves. They both talk to uh, Jeff Novitz. Uh, they both cite Je Jeff, Nov Jeff Novitsky and um, USADA people. It's just like very complicated stuff that I'm glad that they're dealing with because I don't. But generally, and uh, what Leslie mentioned is a Twitter thread uh, in which somebody outlines this possible timeline of events in which it doesn't really seem like things happen in such a hurry. But I would advise you to read the story. The gist of it there is basically it is treated uh, by them as sort of a uh, natural progression of the evolution of the process because it was one thing when it happened to Neil Magny and it is one thing when it happens now. But yeah, there are questions and I think that this has really brought USADA to the forefront of the conversation. I advise you to go into The Athletic and read those stories because they know what I'm talking, what they're talking about and I don't always do. But <laughs> moving on to other recent events. Um, Leslie, you had an, in an interesting interaction on Twitter recently and that's uh where i think our experiences overlap like you said uh as we're both women who dare to have opinions online uh but the, you had this interesting conversation i'm gonna call it with adjusting buckles he's a coach and a fighter uh for those who don't know former fighter i don't know what his status is but anyway uh, i even talked about it this last episode he tweeted something about men being better fighters and athletes in general as women and he did it in a very categorical just like stating the facts sort of way and what I think was the coolest thing Leslie that about your response was that you know after you were done with that weird conversation you were just trying to choose you're choosing to focus on the positive that it was that people were speaking up against the whole concept and that's something that would have been a lot different a decade ago. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, you talked about how different it would have been a decade ago, right? How much do you think that conversation 
has changed uh, over the time that you've been in the sport? Oh my gosh, it's changed so much. Um, it It's just a world of difference. Before, I mean, I've been fighting, <laughs> I've been fighting for 10 years now. My first amateur fight was in 2008 and I had only trained for a month. And when I was walking out to the fight, the announcer um, decided to have some fun on the microphone, and he introduced me as Luscious Leslie Smith, and my opponent as Delightful Danette Benamino. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. Oh, cringe. <laughs> so cringe, right? Oh, man. Uh, so, um, I, I mean, we, we were like a sideshow, and like... A lot yeah. of people just wanted wanted to play off of that whole sideshow thing. And then online, and, and those are the people that I was talking to. Like, those were the people in my face. Like, what's up? It's a chick fight? There's a girl fight? Like, it, it, was, um, it was not highly respected for fighting ability. And then I started fighting for Invicta. And Invicta was, man, so many people thought it wasn't going to work. Like... So many people talked about how no one's ever going to watch an all-women's promotion. Nobody cares about women's fights, but everybody watched it. They got like 230,000 streamers on the very first one, and then it only went up from there. And that's a lot of people to be streaming and watching live. Like, uh, that's a lot of engagement. That's really impressive. And so for a while still, even then, going online and looking at the Invicta social media or the social media of the people who were um, fighting or the YouTube, the YouTube posts of interviews and things like that, people had such jerky stuff to say. Like the ratio was nowhere near what it is now. They were just you know, close-minded stuff about how women shouldn't be fighting, about how nobody wants to see that and they don't have skills. And when I was reading all the comments that were telling uh, Bucoles, Buckles. Um, yeah, I don't know how to say it either. I'm, I was hoping you knew. So You know what's funny? Is that I totally didn't know how to pronounce it. I just always looked at it and was like, B, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody was like, <laughs> At least your last name doesn't rhyme with buttholes. And I was like, oh, oh is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> oh, then I got it right. I just I inst instinctively, I know it rhymed with buttholes. I don't know why. Maybe it was, I don't know, a correlation. But uh, picking up from that, because it's interesting. It's hard to see when you're inside it like you are, because I'm an outside observer, but you were in it. Uh, I was a little bit. I think surprise when I look back, I think it was just surprising how quickly it evolved because not that long ago, and everybody cites that famous Dana White interview in which he said that women would never fight in the UFC. And, and that was like, it didn't really make that many waves because it seemed like an okay thing to say. And now, like, if somebody says that, you're even if you, if some dudes, and we know that they do privately feel that way, they're not going to feel as comfortable talking about it in public like it's frowned upon we have had such a change in discourse and i do sometimes looking back i was like well that happened quickly like do you have that impression too that it's sort of like evolved maybe uh in a faster way than you might have expected totally it went so quickly i mean i think that when i was getting into it with um with that guy 
that it was right when Joanna and Michelle Watterson were about to fight or else they had mm -hmm. just fought. And so, I mean, the comments were like peppered with like, dude, look at this amazing fight that just happened. And I think that the level of women and the intensity and the seriousness that they took it, especially the women who did the ultimate fighter, um, I feel like they really helped all women in MMA by being so upfront and giving such a good example of how hard women train that yeah it was a fast thing it was such a fast transition it's crazy to think that that was only back in like 2011 is that when you said the dana white interview was that's not that long ago yeah 2011 2012 i don't know it was right before ronda i think so i think it was maybe 2012 but it could be 2011 yeah uh and another thing that about the whole uh conversation and another recent event um there was a conversation around Aspen Ladd and her case to overturn her lawsuit, Jermaine Derondami. And you, you talked a little bit about this on Twitter as well, because she used uh, the gender discrimination defense. And you talked about how you didn't really feel that necessarily applied to that case, but there could be something there. I know you also talked to uh, Ben Folks, my colleague at The Athletic, about this. And you mentioned sort of the need for a study before we start making these sort of big conclusions. But... Just from a perspective of somebody who's been there and from your experience, not necessarily just fighting, but training as well, uh, do you see that bias still playing out in any way, even if it's not necessarily in a conscious way? But like, do you still feel that there might be a bias about how women might be a little more fragile or even that some men are still disturbed by the idea of seeing a woman being damaged uh, much more than they would be by seeing, say, a man? Yes, definitely. I I. I think that uh, as a society, just in general, that we have made so much progress since 2011 or 2012, whenever people just accepted that comment from Dana White. And, and it's been wonderful to see all this progress getting made, but I do believe that people still think that women are a little bit more fragile than guys. And to be fair, I mean, women are smaller. They're, they're mm -hmm. statistically, they're not as big as guys and statistically they don't have as much muscle mass for their, uh, body composition. And so they're, uh, I mean, if someone doesn't have as much muscle, then they're not going to have as much strength, but there's also technique involved and there's a lot of heart involved. And one of the problems with training and this is actually my theory on why women's 135 pound division was the first one to come up inside of um, basically all of the like Invicta, Strike Force, and um, the UFC is because the women were large enough to train with the guys that there just weren't enough women to train with each other only. So they had to train with the guys and a size disparity is a big deal, whether it's women and men training or men and men training. I mean, if you've got, um, if you have a flyweight like, uh, Henry Sejudo and he's training with a heavyweight like, uh, Daniel Cormier, I mean, uh, Cormier isn't gonna go a hundred percent on him because that's just not fair. Or <laughs> maybe he would, I don't know. It'd be fun to watch, <laughs> but, but when someone's smaller than you, um, you just, you, you go a little bit differently. I, I don't want to say you have to patronize them because 
Um, like that sucks. Nobody wants to be patronized, but mm-hmm. you got to respect the differences in, um, in the size and in the weight. And so I think that, uh, <laughs> what's funny is that when a guy is way bigger than he doesn't always know how to act. He's like, Oh, should I be more gentle, less gentle? Oh, I don't really know. Instead of just treating it like, okay, I'm a little stronger than you. I'll be a little bit aware of that. It's not about the male female thing. It's about the size disparity. But then when the guys are the same size as the women, not all of them. Okay. This is not everybody. There are some guys who are amazing training partners and I am so Mm -hmm. grateful for them. But a lot of the guys who are the same size as the women, they uh, they kind of have ego problems, and they um, they really don't want to be seen to be getting beat by a woman. So they uh, they only have two speeds. One is like, yeah, all right, cool, this isn't serious. To being like, oh shit, are you fucking me up? Like, ha, hundred percent. Let me go. Ah, and so um, <laughs> I I. God. <laughs> I think that progress is being made and I think that a big part of it is just getting more women on the mats and having leaders inside of the gym who are like able to direct the training sessions in such a way that women aren't getting patronized but they're not getting smashed either so that everybody can get good training out of it. You mentioned getting women uh, there, and I think that's a big part of the conversation everywhere because you also mentioned Invicta, and I think the big, uh, my opinion, is that what made Invicta uh, such a successful experiment in that regard was that Shannon Knapp was ahead of it because she was treating, she was a woman and she saw how women was, uh, she is uh, a a woman and she saw how women were being treated as a sort of like freak show type thing and being promoted for their looks and things like that. And she uh, wanted to do things differently. And I think that speaks to just the need maybe of having more women right everywhere, because that's what you said. Like, uh, most men, most managers in MMA are men. Uh, most people ahead of organizations are men. Most people doing like the big jobs are men. So I think what you just said, in my opinion, reflects that, you know, if you have more women just overlooking the situation, not just participating, but being in these higher roles, like maybe it could really change the whole culture, right? Totally. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that that's true not just in MMA. I think that that's true everywhere in everything that's going on. One of the classes that I'm taking right now, it's called Working Women, (laughs) Um, which is a little bit funny. But uh, we just were reading about this lady who's the um, chief operating officer for Facebook. And she had a whole... um, a whole talk that she did about how women, the structure isn't set up for women to do very well. It's just not, um, the opportunities are not there because there haven't been as many women creating the opportunities and setting things up. And so, uh, the more that women get to be in positions of power and control the structure of the opportunities that are available, then the more that we're going to see more women coming through. I mean, uh, women still make it in, in fighting and in all the other departments. It's just that they have to try a whole lot harder. It's like, um, it's, it's not always the best fit, but they make it work. 
And then the more women that we get into power, the more that they can make it fit. Like Shannon Knapp, ah, she's my hero. She's such a cool lady. She, um, she did things. She had hair and makeup for us when we came in. We didn't have to use it, but it was an option for us to do our photo shoots. And she had um, a hair braider that was at the hotel and would come to all of our rooms to get us ready. Um, and like those might not seem like a big deal to somebody who uh, doesn't need to live up to like female gender ideals or have hair, but those are really big deals. And I think that they're just something that only were able to happen because Shannon was the person in charge and Shannon's a woman and she cared. And so, um, yeah, you're totally right. The more leaders and women in charge that we get, the better. Preach. Uh, yes, I just, I'm so, I'm, it's good to have somebody else saying these things on this podcast. But uh, just the fact that we're having these conversations, though, I mean, I, I personally, I go back and forth. I feel like people are starting to be more, even the, the uh, gender discrimination defense debate. Uh, I feel like at this, sometimes, like when I'm more optimistic and <laughs> when I wake up, I guess, uh, I feel like people are starting to be more receptive to these ideas that a few years ago, it seemed like it wouldn't, it would even be impossible to discuss without being trolled to death. But at the same time, people do seem to get really up in arms whenever the word discrimination appears in a conversation. I think they just feel attacked and just automatically get defensive still. So um, in your experience, uh, do you feel like, are you optimistic? Like, do you feel that we're getting anywhere with these conversations in MMA? Oh, yeah. I'm super optimistic. I mean, how could I not be? I went from having a career that seemed like it could only ever be a hobby to mm -hmm. being able to fight in the largest promotion in the world. Um, and, and I'm still fighting in one of the most prominent promotions in the world against top-level talent. And, and I'm, I'm getting respected for it, even by random people on Twitter. Like, that's freaking amazing. <laughs> I am like, oh man, so optimistic about it. And, uh, and I feel like it's only going to get better. And I feel like um, as, we, as we make this progress in these changes, that we're going to be able to have even more sides of women come out that, that are worthy. Um, I mean, all the sides are worthy of respect. But in order to climb up the ladder in a lot of situations, women have had to really sort of either shut down their sexuality or capitalize on it. There hasn't been a lot of room for them to be one way or the other. Like they've had to be like super serious and, um, you know, very uh, not funny and just intense without having the chance to have any levity because they were maybe worried that people weren't going to take them seriously. And so I think that the more that um, this progress is made by women and for women, then the more freedom that people are going to have to be themselves. And, and that's freeing to everybody. The more that gender stereotypes are mm, taken away, that, that frees up a lot of room for guys, too. You know what's such a funny thing is that... Uh, it is like way more socially acceptable for women to do this fighting stuff, which is seen as a super masculine trait. 
than it is for guys to do, say, a beauty pageant, which is a really feminine trait. And, mm-hmm. and in a way, like, the guys have really gotten the short end of the stick on that one because, like, women, you know, if you think about it, like, women, a tomboy woman, like, that's totally accepted. That's cool. Like, we all know one. We all have been one. Like, it's fine. But to be, like, a feminine guy, um, I mean, we all know and love some, but it definitely has a little bit more progress to make before everybody is just as willing and encouraging and, like, looks at it as not as much of a big deal, just like they look at a tomboy woman. It's. A, I mean, just look at the comments when Elias Theodoro does the ring boy thing for Invicta, which to me is just, it's interesting. I think a guy is really telling on himself when he's being angry about that and he's absolutely fine with a woman doing that same job. But um, it's almost like it doesn't, he thinks it's not a respectable job, so only women should do it. But yeah, uh, I totally hear what you're saying on that. Uh, one thing that it's interesting to me, like those realizations about how gender stereotypes hurt everyone and, and, and really how they play out in our profession. I get, I get asked a lot about, uh, how I came to realize those things in my profession, like questions like, Oh, when did you first start noticing that you, you know, you looked around and you were surrounded mostly by guys and, and things like that. And I can't really pinpoint it. Uh, I think at first I was really in denial about it in my job. Like I didn't really think about it that way. Like, oh, this sucks that I'm the uh, one of two women in this room. I always thought like, no, I'm, I'm just going to do me and things are going to work out. Like I didn't really think of it in those terms. And I had to go through sort of my, I call it my feminist awakening, but uh, I had to sort of just come to those conclusions over time. Uh, my question is, when when was that process for you? Like, were you very aware of your sort of place in the sport and in the world early on? Or was it a process that you sort of like, did you have that moment of epiphany of awakening like I did um, in terms of just your role as a woman? Mm, I was always pretty happy to be the only woman in the room. I it <laughs> I was always plenty happy with that. Um and it was pretty much that way all the time. When I first started training, I was in Colorado Springs and I was the only woman in the room until Raquel Pennington. She joined the team mm. and we trained together for a little while. And then usually I would be the only female fight on the card all the way up until um up until Invicta. But hey, can I ask you another question? Do you feel like sometimes being the only woman in the room is beneficial or like do you get more attention and more opportunity because of it? Or do you feel more like it is not good because it's easier for people to ignore you or not take you serious? Um, I And that's, wow, uh, you really turned this on me. So at first, I think I was, I, 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 I was selfish because that's kind of how I thought at first, like, oh, I'm standing out. And um, that was like you. I started in MMA 10 years ago, obviously <laughs> in a very different capacity as a writer. But um, so I did have that feeling at first because I hadn't really realized um, how having more women in the room was beneficial to me, too. And to the men and to everyone, like I hadn't really realized, um, I hadn't, like I said, had my feminist awakening yet. So I did at first 
Uh, yeah, I admit, I totally felt that way. And it, there was, so now when somebody asked me, I said there was sort of a blissful ignorance uh, at first for me. I thought that I was special for being the only person in the room. And it took me a long time to sort of realize that, no, that was actually hurting me. That was actually hurting other women. That was hurting everyone. That that was not how it's supposed to be, that I should be surrounded by more women. So, yeah. To answer your question, at first I did feel that way, um, but thankfully over time I just started de deconstructing that sort of mentality. And I think that's also something that's very instilled in us, that we're competing against other women as well. Like, we're not competing with everyone else, we're competing against other women. And that's very convenient for men, right? That we're trying <laughs> to get each other off the race. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, for for what it's worth, I had to go through the same process. And I had to, like, realize that inside of myself. Because I'd be, like, just fine with all the guys on the mat. But then there'd be another chick. I'd be like, oh, tch, we got to figure out the pecking order right now. Let's go. Let's see. And, uh, you know, before being like, okay, it's cool. Like, this is another female body. We can both do good. That's fine. Yeah. I think that's that. That's part of the process that we all have to go through and understand and just sort of get that poison away from our bodies because it's put in us from a very early age that we're, other women are our competition. So yeah, totally get that process. But uh, moving on a little bit about the way, I mean, because you talk, obviously you became, like I said, a face for fighter rights and uh, women's issues, but you also talk a lot about other social justice matters i guess on your social media you're uh being very openly supportive of a democratic candidate um what has been the impact of that in your online experience and i mean do, i i know it can be very toxic but there's also some support so at this point of just being a woman online how is that working out for you i guess well it's a nice thing when um when I first was going through kind of all those identity things and not being part of the UFC anymore, I realized that I was way too wrapped up in my sense of myself purely as a UFC fighter. And so I needed mm -hmm. to branch out more and I needed to, to make other things, um, I, not paint things as my identity, but allow myself to care about things enough so I could enhance my identity, not to other people, but to myself. And so... Um, there was a long time where I would be looking at things and caring about things, but I wouldn't share them because I didn't want to distract people from what I thought. Yeah, I, I didn't want to get the, the MMA fighter fans. Mm, I didn't want to make them not like me. I, I thought that that mm -hmm. was the only reason that they cared. And so being able to be passionate about the things that I care about, like Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate, like, um, man, the protesters right now inside of Chile, like uh, just the, whatever it is that's going on at the time that I'm paying attention to, to be able to express myself and say what I think and how I feel about it, that is, it's doing a service to myself. And it's been really nice that people are receptive to it and positive about it. Um, something else Twitter related that I wanted to discuss with you because um, we had a brief exchange about it. I talked about the way that we usually frame conversations around fighter retirement, right? Uh, what I said was in my tweet is that it's often dehumanizing and it sort of like takes the agency away from, from fighters. And when I said we, and 
I, I was talking about us as well, the media, because obviously the way that we frame things influences the way that other people see them. Um, and I've often I often talk about this, about my own feelings, a sort of voyeuristic guilt when it comes to covering MMA. But um, my question for you, as a person who is both a fighter and who follows these conversations around fighting, in which ways do you think that, you know, us the media, the fans can sort of like collectively do better when it comes to talking about fighters? Well, that's kind of tough. That is super tough because I understand that it is the media's job to report and to take stances and to share information. Um, and, and that is something that just happens to athletes who are public in the public eye is that they do get dehumanized a little bit. They get reduced to their stats or their accomplishments or their failures. And, and that's just the nature of the sport. But especially when it comes to wanting to someone to retire, it's a twofold insult to the fighter. Because on the one hand, you're like, dang, like that performance was really lousy which is painful enough, like, oh, those are barbs to the heart, like, you don't want to get that, but then to have, like, and I don't think you're ever going to be able to do better than that, so you should just stop right now, like, oh, that just hurts, like, man, that is so rough, um, and so for, for, I think, I think that a positive way to frame it, there really isn't a positive way to frame it. But I think that maybe focusing more on like the accomplishments that someone's had, I don't know. Honestly, I'm trying to sit here and think about how I would want someone to say that stuff to me. And I guess that I would want them to say it in like the nicest way possible. Like sit me down on a couch and like give me some <laughs> cookies and some like sweet tea and be like look you did really good for a long time <laughs> but um you know do you really think this is the smartest thing for you to do and I I guess that I guess that that's it, maybe just a lighter touch a little bit of a more gentle bedside manner <laughs> got it I think that's a good lesson for media in general <laughs> about all the things uh and lastly, I still have to pretend that this is a podcast about MMA. So I should ask you something fight related because you're fighting Arlene Blanco next. And we know Cyborg, Chris Cyborg, who's just joined uh, Bellator and whom you have fought in the UFC. She's fighting Julia Budd for the title. So your fight certainly looks like a number one contender fight. But uh, my question is, have you had these conversations with Bellator? Like, is that an official or as an of as official as a thing can be an MMA thing that uh, the winner of your next fight is going to get the next title shot? Mm, man, that is definitely what I'm hoping. And that's what I'm going on. And that's part of my motivation. Uh, at the last time, the last time that I fought for Bellator, there were quite a few of us. There were one, two, three hundred and forty-five pound women's matches, and Rich Chow told me that it was basically a tournament. Uh, you know, not not the million dollar grand prix tournament that we just saw Douglas Lima win. Woo, that was pretty cool. And um, I might have closed my eyes and imagined that I was in there a couple times with the streamers and the money and <laughs> 50 Cent clapping me on the back. That would be dope. Um, so not on that level, although it would be wonderful it happens. 
Um, but still, I have been going on the assumption that, like Rich said, that it is a tournament. And so I feel like this is the next round is Blenko and I. And then I, <laughs> I'm thinking me, um, of course I'm going to think me, is going to get to win this fight. And then we're going to... We're going to see who wins on the 25th. And and so, yeah, I'm definitely looking at it like a contender fight, but I haven't gotten anything in writing or 100% to say that. Yeah, got it. Um, I, I had actually forgot. You actually fought for Bellator. What was it, 2009? <laughs> yeah, Bellator number seven. Oh, wow, yeah. I'm just looking at it now with Carrie Vera. Yeah. Ten years ago. That's intense. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I mean, this is sort of an abstract question, but it's something that I, I like to get fighters insight on because it just it's so different when we talk about a belt like a Bellator belt um, or a UFC belt, any major league belt. I think it the value of it, although every fighter will tell you that they want to be champion, the value placed on that object is a little different, especially when somebody's just coming up in their careers and they're 20 something like they, I think that really seems to be the ultimate goal. And as fighters go along in their own careers, I think the priorities might shift a little bit. Uh, so my question for you, like, is getting that belt, whether it's in your next fight or whenever, like, is that something that you feel like you need for your career for it to be complete or looking back on it, even if you do end up retiring without having a major uh, title? Like, do you think that, you'd be happy with your accomplishments regardless? Um, that is an interesting question. I definitely am going to be happier with my career retiring with the belt, 100%. <laughs> That's absolutely the goal. I think that um, being um, in different promotions, there's not always a clear path. And so right <laughs> now I'm in Bellator and... And, and Rich, the matchmaker, totally said, hey, this, this is kind of like a tournament. And so that is how I'm looking at it. And I am seeing it as, like, these are the, the rocks inside of the pond that I have to jump from one to the other to get to the other side where the belt is. And mm -hmm. it's really exciting just to have that path laid out and to see where I need to land even if it's not 100% guaranteed. Because in the UFC, there was, uh, I mean, man, those you, <laughs> you're like skipping rocks, you're like swimming from one to the other, <laughs> you're maybe like taking a parachute to one, you got to get a submarine to get to the other one. Like, there was never a very clear path in order to get there. And so it's really nice to have a merit-based system And I think that's a beautiful thing about what Bellator has going on is that you win, you get the opportunity. And I think that that's the most important thing is just to be able to keep on climbing. And mm, for the other part of the question, like about being happy about it, I think that I think that there's two ways to look at uh, at an MMA career. And one of them is as a fighter and yeah, the belt is everything. Like, absolutely nothing else matters. Like, you either win or you lose. Like, second place means you lost. Nah, all of that. But on the other hand, there is the martial artist aspect of it, which is mm -hmm. you either win or you learn. And you just keep on getting better. And you're out there to do inspire people. And you're out there to create a community and 
to pave the road for the people who are going to come after you. And um, I, uh, I can't say I'm completely of the martial artist mentality because, man, that belt <laughs> is really important. But maybe yeah. if I was a little bit more mature, then I would be able to stick more with that <laughs> martial artist mentality. Uh, you did talk about being sort of an emotional wreck until the moment that you won your last fight. Uh, are you feeling any differently going into this one? Actually, I feel really good going into this one. I'm really excited and happy. My training camp has been going really well. I'm going to work with Caesar Gracie tomorrow. We have a session planned. Gilbert Melendez has been coaching me a whole lot. Carrie Melendez just won her last fight on Bellator as well, and that was super motivational. I think that she is one of, if not the very best striker in Bellator, male or female. And so watching her go and just... Mm, do so well off of her back and uh, in the grappling department. Uh, like, that's super inspirational for me because I've always been like, well, I'm a, I'm a striker. That's my thing. And, yeah, I train really hard with the grappling, but, you know, I'm just going to keep it to my comfort zone. And so um, watching, watching such an amazing striker be like, oh, yeah, you want to grapple? Let's go has been super motivational and I feel really good about where I'm at and what I want to make happen in this fight. Awesome. Leslie, well, thank you. I've already taken up too much time of your very busy schedule. Thank you. This was awesome. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Is there anything that you want to get out there into the universe before we go a message, a primal yell, anything else? <laughs> um... <laughs> I think just that it's wonderful that you're doing this and that it's so cool that you are a voice um, and that you are uh, braving, that you're braving so much out there that is like vitriolic directed at women in order to like spread this love of MMA. And I really appreciate you being a woman and doing this. Thank you. Aww. Okay, so before I cry, uh, I'm just gonna wrap this up. That is, <laughs> that is it, everyone, uh, for this week's episode of Well Actually. I was joined by Leslie Smith, who again fights Arlene Blanco at Bellator 233, November 8 in Thackerville, Oklahoma. And as for me, you can find me on social media, you can find me at The Athletic, and you can find me here every Tuesday to hear me yapping about MMA and other stuff. 